Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 24, the verses 36 to 44, and then our text for the service is Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. First, Matthew 24, verse 36. 24, verse 36, hear the word of God, the words of our Lord Jesus. But of that day and hour, he's talking about the day when he returns, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so will also be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then we go to 25 verse 14. This is our text. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to each according to his talent, his his ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servants. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. 
Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the Word of God. After the proclamation of God's Word, we'll sing together hymn 63, stanzas 2, 3, and 4. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the passage that we have before us this morning is part of what is usually referred to as Matthew's eschatological discourse. Chapters 24 and 25 are speaking about all kinds of matters related to the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The question being asked here again and again is, given that He's coming again, what is the task of the church during this time as we wait for Him to return? And the answer that we get in Matthew 24, a portion of which we read, is she must watch. 24 verse 42, keep watch, stay awake, because you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He underlines it with the first parable of chapter 25. The conclusion of that parable in verse 13 is, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. But the question comes up, what does it mean to watch? Does it mean that we should climb the highest mountain we can find and look out over the mountain and over the valleys and, and see what we can see and see if we can come and see Him coming back? Does it mean, as the Thessalonians seem to have thought, that it doesn't make any sense to go to work anymore? And so they said, forget that. Because after all, the Lord is going to come, and what good then is all your work? Well, it seems the next parable, the parable of the talent, so-called, is given to us precisely to show us what watching means. And it means to labor. It means to sweat. It means to get busy. It's good for us to think about that on a Labor Day weekend and before everything starts up again in our work life, our church life. Watching means a different perspective on our labors. It means we not only pray, but we also work. It means as we lift our eyes to heaven where Christ is, and we know He's coming back from there, we at the same time have our eyes on this earth, and we accomplish the things that we are meant to accomplish, all the things that we are given to do with a new perspective, because Jesus is coming again. Sometimes Calvin is credited as, or maybe faulted for having spurred the Protestant work ethic. But if we understand our Lord and this parable of our Lord, then we know that here is the one who really spurs us on to labor and to work and to diligence and to faithfulness. This is the task the Lord puts before us, to work hard and to work faithfully in whatever station and calling He gives us for the cause of the kingdom of Christ. 
So God's Word comes to you this morning under this theme. The Lord Jesus teaches us watching faithfully also means laboring faithfully. We'll speak about the point of the parable, the faithfulness of everyone. Secondly, the one faithless servant. And thirdly, the two faithful servants. So the faithfulness of all, the one faithless servant, and the two faithful servants. Brothers and sisters, actually the title of this parable is is to be regretted and actually causes quite some confusion. We call it the parable of the talents, and that is indeed what you get if you simply transliterate the original Greek word, talanta, and then you get something like talents. But the word talent in the Bible is really quite different from the English word talents. By the word talents, we mean gifts and abilities, and therefore you hear people say, man, you got to use your talents. Don't you know the parable of the talents? But the parable uses the word talanta in a completely different way. It doesn't even mean that. To make that clear, the new NIV has called this the, it speaks instead of talents, it talks about the the bags of silver, and the New Living Translation, the NIV says the bags of gold, the New Living Translation says the bags of silver. The one gets five bags, the other one gets two bags, and the third one gets one bag. One Bible calls it the parable of the loaned money, and that's a good title. For what is it all about? Well, it's a once again a story not unfamiliar to people of that day, about a rich man who went to a far country, and in the meantime, what does he do when he goes to a far country? He entrusts all his business to trusted people, to good people. This often happened in the world of business and politics. Somebody would have to travel far away, and this would be a person of means, and so we'd have to do this, make sure somebody took care of it. As a matter of fact, when the Lord Jesus tells this story, he's thought to be around Jericho and the city where the hated ruler Archelaus was, the son of Herod. And it was common knowledge that Archelaus, too, at one point, had to make a journey to Rome to see the emperor to cling to his power. And so, of course, Archelaus had to commend his kingdom to somebody else. So that kind of thing happened all the time. So this rich man takes three of his servants, and according to their respective abilities, he gives the one, first one five bags of silver, the second one two bags of silver, and the third one one bag of silver. And you've got to realize these are no small amounts of money. It seems to be difficult to determine how large they were exactly. The ESV, at least, gives us the direction that one talent is worth no less than 20 years' wages. So one man receives the equivalent of 100 years of wages. Take the amount of money you make this year and multiply it 100 times. That's what he gets. And the next one gets 40 years' wages. And the last one gets 20 years' wages. And the idea, of course, is not that they go off and spend it like if they won the lottery, but the idea is to take care of it and to use it 
with a view to their master. In other words, how their master would want them to use it. Who's the rich man? Who's the master? It's, of course, our Lord Jesus. He's the one going on a journey. He's journeying to the place of power, the right hand of the Father. He's the one who, before doing so, leaves those who are His with positions of responsibility and with the return of the man in the parable and his calling his servants to account, that, of course, is a reference to his coming back. Jesus is going to come back, and something like this is going to happen. It's going to render to every man according to his deeds. This parable is given us to make us focus on the day when the sun returns and the day of judgment that's following. Here, too, the message is, regardless of whether we believe it, regardless of whether we prepare for it, there is a day coming that is unavoidable and irrevocable. There will be a judgment to end all judgments beyond which there is no court of appeal. And so what do these talents represent? Well, some say they represent gifts or talents in that sense of the word. Others believe that it's the gospel. Others say it has to be restricted to financial means, to financial stewardship kind of thing. But it appears that actually it's a kind of symbol that meant in a comprehensive kind of way. It does not exclude your gifts. It doesn't exclude your finances. It doesn't exclude the, the gospel, the power of the gospel, and so much else. The emphasis on the parable is on the fact that the servants have a calling to labor faithfully in all areas of life, whatever their task. And they have to do that until the coming of Christ. So the talents really must be the concrete areas of responsibilities and opportunities we all have in the kingdom of God to serve Christ. Whatever you have to do is not just your job, your task, your work. It is a calling in the kingdom of God to serve Him well. We sometimes think that only ministers and office bearers in their spare time are the ones who are doing kingdom work. No, we're all busy with kingdom work. The world is the kingdom. Christ is king of everything, and whatever you have is His, and you must use it with a view to Him. We have to work for Him, set our sights on Him. The men in the story were all servants of the Master, and so what Jesus is doing when He sketches them this way is saying, every professing Christian has God-given responsibilities and opportunities within the church and the world to serve Him and His kingdom. You are not just person X who has been redeemed and set on a new path. You are person X who has been redeemed and has made a child of God and is meant to live as a child of God in the ways that God wants you to. The underlying assumption of the parable is there is no shortage of work for Christians to be doing in God's kingdom. There are responsibilities and opportunities to serve God in the fellowship of His church and as believers acting as salt and light in a wider community. There is love to be shared. There are the weak to be encouraged. There are the sick to be visited. There are the elderly to be comforted. The new in the faith to be instructed. There's a world to be witnessed to with the message of hope and salvation in the returning Jesus. 
No one believer can do all of these or is even supposed to do many of them. But God has a place for every Christian to be faithfully committed to the work of His kingdom. The church is a body. And you know what happens to a body if there are some members, some limbs of the body who never do anything? That body begins to misfunction. It doesn't function properly at all. Soon it has all kinds of handicaps and difficulties. But the church is a body and every part of the body is a living part part of it. There's far too much spectator Christianity in today's church. We think that we as members of the church are all sitting in the bleachers and we're just sitting there watching the pastor and the elders do all this kind of work. No, that's not the biblical pattern. The scriptural pattern is that being a Christian is a full-time responsibility and it's full-time for all of us. For all of us, following our Lord Jesus means living with a view to Christ, with every fiber of your being in relationship to the work of the kingdom, in relationship to the work of the church, and your work in home, and your work in the office, wherever God has placed you in school, do your best, because Christ is coming back. The parable of the talents demolishes the idea of the inactive Christian. If you are a fringe member who does no more than attend church services and let other people do the rest of the work, you are, as it were, burying your responsibility, your talent in the ground. You have not begun to grasp the privilege and joy it is to serve and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. If all you're thinking about when it comes to church is what you get out of it, you're forgetting something. The bigger question is, what are you putting in? What are you contributing to the life and well-being of the church? Together in the church, we labor for the Lord who rules in heaven, and the most important thing in life is that He finds us faithful. And this, to be sure, is not limited to what we do in the church. No, the kingdom is the world. All of it belongs to God. Whatever God has given you to do, whether it's work or school or at home, you are not supposed to do it just because of the satisfaction you get out of it or the money you get out of it or the marks you get out of it or the career you're going to get and all the money you're going to make. Every part is part of Christ's kingdom. You do your work, your study, your family life, your church life with the view to serving God. Christ is Lord of everything. Later, Paul will tell, mass, tell slaves, you know, if any work was despised in those days, it was the work of slaves. And you might argue, well, those, those guys, they, they got their own life and a difficult life. But Paul, Paul tells them, Colossians, Ephesians, he says, serve them and serve them well because you have a master, a master in heaven. Don't just work as eye servers, as eye men pleasers, but work with a view to the Lord God Himself because He is ultimately your master. If God does that with, with slaves, doesn't He do that with all of us? And so it's good to note as well, notice here too that the, how the talents are entrusted, these bags of money are entrusted to the servants, each according to their ability. <coughs> the Lord recognizes within the church, within the kingdom, not everybody has the same gifts. 
Not everybody has the same abilities and opportunities. But yet it needs to be noted, even though they are given accordingly, according to their gifts, they are all accountable. Each is given something. Nobody can say, I got nothing to do here. And they will be held accountable as to what they've done. Differing sums, differing abilities, different kinds of service, but everyone is given something, no one excluded. Faithfulness is the currency by which the value of Christian service will be measured. And hence, for everyone, the question is, what are you doing with whatever the Master has given you? This is the question Jesus asks on Judgment Day. Not just how much money did you make, but what did you do for me and in my name and in my kingdom with the opportunities and challenges that I gave you. If you have professed your faith, and you have said in the very presence of God, you made a commitment with view to that judgment because you said in God's presence, you are asked the question, do you firmly resolve to commit your whole life, not a piece of it, but your whole life to the Lord's service as a living member of His church. Well, this then is what we're being reminded of. There's another day coming when we will stand even more vividly in the presence of God face to face, and we will answer the question, how have you done with those promises? So I set you on the path of grace. It's not all about works. God sets us on the path of grace. But once He sets us on the path of grace, then he expects that we'll do something with that grace that continues to overflow. There's a mistaken notion which says it's all grace and all forgiveness, so I can just sit back and it's all taken care of. Have we forgotten the word to the Corinthians? To those saved by grace, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body whether good or bad. Have we grown deaf to the parables? Those parables were not written for unbelievers, you know. They were written for the church, first of all, for the people of God. And those parables were actually, when you study the parables and you think about the question of justification and sanctification, how we become right for God and how we live out our lives, most of those parables are actually about how we live out our lives. Jesus takes everyday stories in order to get us going and to motivate us and to move us to serve Him and serve Him well in all kinds of areas of life. Every one of them is teaching us accountability, teaching us one day we will stand before our Lord and Savior, the one who went to the cross, who stood, will stand before us as a judge and say, what benefit to you was my cross? What difference did it make in your life? What difference did it make in your perspective? The Christian life is entirely a matter of grace. None of this denies that. It's grace that gets us going and grace that keeps us going to the very end. We need this to the hour of our death. It's grace that you receive anything at all from the Master. Paul says to the Corinthians at one point, what did you receive that you did not get from God? 
But grace is not for naught. The life of grace is meant to be a life of service for the King who has so loved you that he gave himself entirely. The judgment is about, what did you do with this grace? And it's interesting then to first of all zero in on that one servant who was found wanting on judgment day. What did he do immediately on receiving that one talent, that one bag of silver or gold? He, he, took, a ho- he took a shovel and he dug a hole and he buried it. It wasn't uncommon in those days to bury your money. You didn't have banks, so the people buried it, and later people might find it. But anyway, he buried this money. Why did he do that? His rationale was clear. They are actually most astounding words in verse 24 and 25. Not very often people dare to speak to God this way. But this is what the man says. He defends his own actions by accusing his master. He's not at fault. His master is at fault. He accuses his master of being hard and grasping, of exploiting the labor of others, of reaping where you have not sown, of gathering where you did not scatter. So this is what I did, he says. I played it safe. I buried that which was yours. I tucked it away so that I would be sure I wouldn't lose it and so that today I could give it all back to you, no more, no less. Here it is, Lord. This master... This man, he sees his master as some kind of greedy capitalist. He feared that if he would make use of the master's money, he might just lose it and incur the wrath of his master. And so he follows what he considers to be a sound and conservative fiscal policy. He argues it's better to keep what you have than to try for more and risk losing everything. What does it refer to? It refers not just to a man who is a bad steward, but it refers to a man who refused to labor in his place and calling in the kingdom. It doesn't necessarily mean the man was lazy. He must have worked, for he couldn't live off his master's money. He was buried in the ground. But this was his way. Putting aside his master's money, (coughs) he just kept busy with his own pursuits. He just lived as if his life was just his own and he wasn't accountable to anybody other than some earthly rulers. The problem was not that he didn't labor. The problem was he didn't labor for his master. He shrugged off responsibilities and opportunities given to him right in front of him and went and lived the way he wanted to. Was his task one of confessing the truth by a godly life? He didn't do it. Was he called to comfort somebody stricken by sorrow? He didn't do it. Was he called to suffer affliction with patience and courage and contentment? He didn't do it. Did he see the task that he had with the one talent? He didn't do it. And when he's confronted by his wrongdoing, he offers up some seemingly good but actually very bad theology to defend himself. It's actually a mark of justification by faith. If you're never guilty, if you're never the one who has any guilt, then your justification by faith is really in question. Because justification by faith, although my conscience accuses me, I have grievously sinned, yet Christ, My conscience accuses me. But this man's conscience doesn't accuse him. He just says, it's your fault, O God, because you are this arbitrary person. You know, my master reaps 
where he doesn't sow, gathers where he doesn't scatter. He accuses his master of being grasping and unpredictable, exploiting the labors of some and putting his servants in an impossible position. If he would seek to put the talent to work and increase it, he would get little of the benefit anyway. If he tries and loses it, he would incur all this wrath. Maybe he's upset as well because he only got one bag. That other guy got five bags of gold. What he forgets, that it is simply his task to do what his master commands. It shows a lack of love for his master, which he covers up by blaming and excusing himself. Only the wicked servant blames his master. But grace never condones irresponsibility. Even those that are given less are obligated to use and develop what they have. What is the point? The point our Lord is making is, if we have any faith at all, if we really know what the grace of God is all about, we will always at least yield some benefit for the Lord. If we are any kind of servants of the Lord at all, we will always at least render some acts of service to the Master in our home, in our work, in our church. Faith must produce something positive. Christianity is not just a drudgery to death where you're told, don't do this and don't do that. You're also told to do this and do that and get busy. Disciples must at least do something the Lord is happy about. Every Christian young man and woman must wrestle with this question at the beginning of their adult life. What can I best do with the gifts the Lord has given me? It's not the question, how can I possibly make the most possible amount of money in my life? Or how can I get the most powerful job in my life? But the question is, what are my gifts? And how can I use them to the maximum to serve my master? I'll give my life for him because he gave his life for me. So why shouldn't I do the same? The approach of unbelieving man is to put self at the center. He puts time in for the sake of the time off. A week of work is endured with a view to a weekend of no work. But the approach of the believing man has to have God at the center. We see our work as our God-given station and calling. We see our daily task to glorify God in whatever it is that He has given you to do. Not just in our time off, but all the time. We see our desk or our workbench or our kitchen as being tied in with the kingdom of God, with the future of the world, with the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we don't work just so that we can have a good time when we don't work, but time off is there precisely so that we will work better. Hours away from our daily labor are there with a view to better serving God in the hours that we labor. We don't labor to eat but we eat in order to labor. The goal is not the weekend. The goal is the week. We begin the day of rest, the week with a day of rest, precisely so that what we do through the week will be able to do it well.
Christianity is full-time for all of us, living in the light of the return of our Lord Jesus. He makes the best possible use of every opportunity, day and night, to serve God in His acts of service. We are there where the Word is being preached and where it's being discussed. We are there where acts of charity and words of comfort are needed. We are laboring for the kingdom causes that demand that we give all extra of our time and effort and money. It all makes you wonder how many of us in the end will try to excuse ourselves with some or the other bad theology. Good luck with that. Jesus knows his theology. Lord, it was too hard. I didn't want to let you down by losing it. You're pretty hard on failures, Lord. So I just put it away. Or there are better, more gifted, more qualified people than me. It's very interesting to notice that not only do these men receive talents, bags of silver, according to their ability, they're also judged according to their ability. The first and last servants were not judged on the same scale. The last servant was not judged as if he had, was the one who had five talents. He was not even required to double his talent and return to his master indicated. Even a small return, even interest paid by a banker would have been preferable to no return. The question is solely, what have I done with what I have received? The judge is sympathetic. The judge knows that not everybody is stellar at everything. Not everybody has he so gifted. The point is not, I don't have enough, it's all too much. Rather, what have I done according to my ability with the resources and the opportunities the Lord has given me? And so you see, at bottom, really the issue is not, did we do enough as if it's all about works, as if we can justify ourselves? Paul says it is impossible for anybody to justify themselves by their works. If that was possible, Christ wouldn't have to die. You'd, You'd do it yourself. No, the question is, do we believe or not? Do we live in and out of grace or do we not? Or do we think grace is something that gets us going and the rest is up to us? No. Do we believe or do we not? That's the question. Are we servants of Christ or do we not? Did the experience of of belief and commitment to God, has that done something to us? Or is this just some abstract theology that we tuck away in our brain and then live like everybody else. That's the problem with this whole man. His whole answer, his whole manner of speaking to the Lord shows that he's none of these things. He sees the master as a greedy despot, and so he does nothing for him, and he receives the horrible punishment that he receives. Not because he has no works, first of all, but because the lack of works displays so obviously the lack of real faith. This is the danger of the last judgment, that actually that discussion will uncover the possibility that actually there was no faith at all. So how do we wait for the Lord? What is it to be watchful? It's to stop living in a self-centered way and living in a God-centered way. It's a rule of life. 
I never grow as a human being unless I cross the safe boundaries I have set for myself and make myself vulnerable to possible failure and rejection and loss. I never learn a new job unless I'm prepared to make mistakes in the training process. I never learn to speak a new language until I'm willing to be laughed at by people who know it better. So too in the Christian life. Faith makes us daring. Faith wants to grow. There's no standing still permitted, no burying of capital allowed. Martin Luther called the Christian life a life which is always in motion. To stand still is to go backwards. The responsible discharge of my calling as a Christian and all the more as an office bearer of the church requires taking risks for the kingdom, risks I would rather avoid. But faith presses us on. You see it with the two faithful servants. You hear our men full of faith. There is an enthusiasm and eagerness about real faith. Look at verses 16 and 17. He who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more. I think they missed something in the New King James. They forgot the the translation of the word. At once, he went. Uh, The big word here is at once. The man who received five talents from the hand of the master went away and at once immediately made five more. Someone said immediately is the single most exciting word of the parable. Immediately, says, it says, that this servant takes whatever the Lord gives and goes instantly to do whatever he's called to do with enthusiasm. He's so thrilled to have been trusted with gifts that without a moment's loss, he wants to throw himself into their use. The words that follow illustrate this saying, this man moved out, traded with the talents, won five more. They're all aggressive words. Activity, not passivity, is the usual mode. And the second servant does the same. It means, according to our Lord, waiting for the Lord is not just a matter of religious inwardness, nor of pious inertness. Yes, we need that too, to to pause and and do our devotions and, and be committed to God and get a new perspective on the day. But after that, There are busy times for busy people, for the Lord's people. Waiting for the Lord is something that mobilizes the believer as it invites him or her to explore the joys of living out of the grace of God. And the gospel is indeed a gospel of grace. It knows nothing of works that precede grace, but it most certainly does know of works that flow from grace. And a faith that must necessarily flow out into works, not to receive salvation and blessing, but precisely because and when you have already received it. The Catechism once once points, points out when it's talking about fruits of thankfulness, and it doesn't say, well, it's likely that people who believe will produce fruits of thankfulness. It uses very strong words as it captures scriptures. It says, it is impossible, impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Watch, therefore, 
It means the Lord's coming. Remember, it's coming soon. Don't you hear his footsteps? But it means get to work because Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's a life full of action and mobility for there's a precious promise. The Lord does reward his people and there is nothing wrong with rewards in the life of grace. To everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. Amen.